Hi, I'm Tim Marlow, the Artistic Director of the Royal Academy of Arts in London. You're listening to a podcast from our events programme, recorded live in the new Benjamin West Lecture Theatre. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Royal Academy of Arts. My name is Amy Blewett, and I am the Adult Learning Programme Manager here. Tonight's event, in partnership with the Royal Society, is the third in a series of conversations between artists and scientists. The aim with this series is to explore how the arts and the sciences can benefit from meaningful reciprocal collaboration. This partnership marks a return of the Royal Society to its former headquarters here in Burlington House, where it called its home from 1857 to 1968. The collaboration between the science and art worlds isn't something new to hear us at the Academy. The Royal Academy's Professorship of Chemistry was first advertised in 1871 and awarded to Frederick Bath. There were then seven more professors of chemistry here up until 2018, and I believe the vacant post has now been filled and will be announced soon. Tonight demonstrates the first opportunity for us to host a conversation between Royal Society Fellows and Royal Academicians. Tonight we have Marcus Dusatoy and Conrad Shawcross, who have shown great interest in being involved in tonight. Interest which I'm sure will be revealed with um, journalist, writer, broadcaster and presenter Samira Ahmed. Samira is best known for presenting BBC Radio 4's Front Row and BBC One's Newswatch, and with over 20 years' experience in journalism, her work has explored the intersection of culture, science, politics, and social change. Samira is also on the advisory board of the National Science and Media Museum in Bradford. So I really hope you enjoy tonight's event, and without further ado, please join me in welcoming Samira, Marcus, and Conrad. Thank you so much, um, and welcome to everyone. I think it's fair to say we're constantly being warned nowadays how AI and computers will destroy our jobs. Um, interestingly, I met a Silicon Valley executive at uh, the British Science um, Association Summit last year who has a computer science background, and she told me that if she were going to university now, she would choose a humanities subject as computer programmers are the ones who are going to be replaced by AI. Um, <laughs> I tell that at every event I do now. I just thought that might make us all feel better. Because creative thinking wouldn't be replaceable. But we're going to find out tonight if that's true. Um, so will artists be out of work? And even if that seems a silly question, what impact is science, is maths having, um, are algorithms and AI having on our idea of art and how it works? Even at the most basic level, so many of us are aware of some of those amazing curving shapes of early 21st century architecture and public sculpture, whether by Zaha Hadid or Anish Kapoor or indeed Conrad Shawcross. Um, some clearly reliant on computer modeling and awareness of mass engineering to see possibilities and to make them real. So, with us to be in conversation and also to take some questions from you at the end, so start thinking of what you might like to ask. Conrad Shawcross, the artist and sculptor, author of Psychogeometries, whose works combine his fascinations with geometry and philosophy. They include public sculptures that become part of the landscape. I went to see his optic cloak a couple of years ago, built for its power substation. Um, visible from the highway for cars driving into the Blackwall Tunnel, uh, uh, 
a work of art that had its place in a new community that was being built. Um, Marcus du Sautoy is a well-known mathematician and crucially a public communicator about maths too, and author of The Creativity Code, whose work with mathematical shapes in multiple dimensions seems very much to take us into a world closer to art and imagination than the maths most of us might have engaged with in our daily lives or at school. I want to be very much led by uh, both of you. Certainly I love the idea in your book, Marcus, of maths as painting with ideas. So I thought perhaps to start off, Marcus first and then Conrad, you've got some visual images um, and to get, get us thinking about where science and art meet. Yes, well, I suppose um, I partly wrote this book about the creativity code um, because I wanted to try and convince myself that I couldn't be put out of a job as a mathematician uh, by code because what I do is highly creative and involves a lot of aesthetics, emotion and choice and things which I've always felt had a close connection with uh, what drives an artist. Um, there's clearly lots of connections between maths and music, but um, whenever I've been to Conrad's exhibitions, uh, I, I've always felt we seem to be interested in very similar things. And I went round to, uh, we live very close to each other in, in uh, East London, and so I went round to his studio and it just looked like a kind of uh, mathematician's laboratory. Um, and I could see he was totally obsessed with very similar thought of things that I've been obsessed with, and actually humans have been obsessed with for years, which is the idea of uh, symmetry and what you can make out of things that are symmetrical. That's what my research is about. So I thought I'd just start by laying a little foundation. You probably uh, were in a kind of art space, probably have seen some of Conrad's pieces, but you may not have seen some of my pieces. So I wanted to give you a little feel for uh, one of the challenges, you can't see my pieces. But it all began with actually the ability to see things. And uh, we've been obsessed with making symmetrical objects for, for many years. So this dates back uh, 5,000 years. Um, Neolithic stones found in Scotland where an art artists exploring the possibilities of symmetry. But actually, it's the mathematician who then uh, looked at what the limitations of symmetry are. And we find in the first great textbook of all time, Euclid's Elements, a proof that there are only five solids called the platonic solids that you can make um, at where each of the faces is a symmetrical face. These are essentially the dice that you have in Dungeons and Dragons. Um, uh, one in particular is really very important to a connection between what Conrad and I are fascinated in, which is the simplest of the symmetrical shapes, which is the tetrahedron. This is made out of four equilateral triangles. Um, the ancient Greeks believed this was the building blocks of the natural world, these shapes, and uh, the, the tetrahedron corresponded to fire, that you could make the whole of the universe out of symmetry. In a sense, we understand that that's kind of true because symmetry is the, the heart of fundamental particles. Diamond is strong because of the tetrahedron. Um, but I think it's interesting that you see this dynamic between the artist and the scientist exploring what's possible in symmetry. So again, one of my favorite places in the whole of the world, if I was banished, I'd love to live in the Alhambra in Granada because that's a place where the, the 13th, 14th century artists were exploring what's possible on the walls. Um, and but it took till the end of the 19th century for mathematicians to come up with a language to explore symmetry. And it was a language not of the visual, but of the kind of linguistic and algebraic, which showed us that there are actually only 17 different 
sort of symmetries that you can make on the wall in the Alhambra. And this language actually gave us the ability to understand that we, as mathematicians, could classify symmetry and show that they're actually building blocks, like the ancient Greeks thought they were building blocks of matter. Um, so we understood that there are kind of atomic symmetries, something a bit like the periodic table in chemistry, that's all the atoms which build molecules. We understood that you could actually classify the building blocks of symmetry. Uh, this was finally done uh, when I sort of uh, uh, became a research mathematician in the mid-80s. Um, there was a culmination of a 150-year project which produced basically our periodic table. And I, I brought it along with me tonight. So I thought I'd pass this round for you, you to have a look at. Because uh, you'll find no pictures in here at all. But these are the objects from which we build um, all the symmetries that we believe are possible. Um, and that's what I do in my own fundamental research. So uh, I'm going to show you um, my kind of proudest moment in my mathematical career. This is a theorem that I proved. This is a symmetrical object that I discovered. Now, you see no pictures here. What is described here is the way this symmetrical object kind of works, the different moves that you can make. But this is an object that lives in very high dimensional space. It's kind of putting together one of the simplest building blocks in this periodic table, um, a bit like we'll see that Conrad puts together tetrahedrons to make things. This is my uh, piece of uh, uh, creation, discovery. We'll probably get into that. Um, but for me, there's something important here, which is about a choice that I made. And this is why I believe that there's something sort of about mathematics which is much closer to the artist than the scientist. Uh, I could get a computer to make many different symmetrical objects, but most of them are boring. This one is interesting because it tells a story. It connects symmetry to the world of a completely different area of mathematics, something called elliptic curves and trying to solve equations. And for me, that's what's important about a mathematician. I, I tell a story with this, and I want to take my uh, listeners in seminars in Oxford on a journey which is an emotional surprise, um, exciting, and that's something I think that a computer is going to find very difficult still to do because it's very bad at telling stories. Thank you. Conrad. Great, thank you. So uh, Marcus was just elaborating on the platonic solid. So this one of the things that has been an incredibly sort of um, kind of uh, amazing friend to me or just this amazing kind of um, rich source of investigation for me and just keeps on giving in terms of kind of ideas or, or beguiling properties is the tetrahedron, which is, as you said, is the simplest of the platonic solids. I, I learned about platonic solids at school and I was told there were five of them and they all had the same number of faces on the outside, but it was when I revisited them or someone defined them in a different way to me that they suddenly became extraordinarily interesting to me and that they are... While they, I was never told why there were five, and because there are lots of polygons and different forms, but they are the only ways you can divide the surface up of a sphere up equally. So if you imagine these, those shapes that um, that Marcus had up, if you imagine inflating them uh, like a football or a balloon, they would form perfect spheres. So it's like um, uh, that, that. That's one of them. So it's a really interesting thing that a sphere can only be broken up equally five ways. So it's a um, something that really sort of got me thinking. So there's a radiant symmetry to them, which I've used in lots of different ways, but it was suddenly in the way that it was defined, they suddenly became something incredibly different to me. And I'm interested not from, from a mathematical point of view, but also a philosophical point of view. The tetrahedron was the symbol of the atom in Greek uh, mythology and Greek uh, philosophy. 
is the indivisible unit of matter. And the atom to us now is, is quite misleading. It's, in a way, it's a bit like Pluto. It should, be, uh, it should be withdrawn, the name atom, because it was very eagerly. It's an example of scientists being too eager at a certain point and coin, using this, this ancient word and coining something which they believed to be the indivisible matter. But within a generation, the atom had been divided into the quark and the electron. And so it should have been um, retracted. So it should have been the particle formerly known as. as uh, <laughs> but um, but it's, uh, we can refer to it now as that, if you want to. But um, so I was, that, I was interested in trying to use the tetrahedron as a building block. And I thought very naively and quite kind of cavalierly, I made 800 tetrahedrons. And uh, I thought I, could, I had two weeks to put them together in a garden. And I thought, I'll find the rules and the logics of this thing, and, work, and then I'll be able to sculpt what I want out of it. But it was very, it was very uh, irrelevant and sort of um, irreverent and, and just formed its own rules. And I couldn't, I couldn't channel it or, 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 or kind of car, or carve it, so to speak, or control it. It was very unruly, and it doesn't tessellate with itself. So it formed these tendril-like, fire-like things. So it just basically made itself. So again, this thing, which I think we'll come on to later about the, this idea of discovery and invention, I was trying to invent something, but it was really sort of just forming itself, and I had no sort of control over it. But I was also interested in this idea of radiance and entropy and expansion, the idea of space and time, and trying to convey complex ideas, but visually. So I think, again, like with your symmetry thing is interesting in that it only that represents in numbers, but it's, it's, in it's impossible to represent it visually. And I'm trying to sort of represent abstract ideas that will never be seen by our eyes um, kind of visually. So trying to sort of create sort of models or metaphors. This was a way of trying to, which I've got a model here, which you can pass around. This is a, this is called, um, this is a sort of system which basically the tetra, it was a way of trying to create a hierarchy of scale so that the biggest ones are the oldest, and then they basically using the series of truncations, which is all based in very mathematical proportions. It basically decays and spirals around, so it can sort of carry on forever. But it formed these um, these larger works called the dappled light, dappled light of the sun, which were these like sort of cloud-like forms on stilts made of thousands of tetrahedrons of five different sizes that would grow out and radiate out and form these these things which oscillated between sort of. Clouds in, in, in nature they form like almost like nimbus like cloud like structures, but they also were meant were based on ice crystals and neural pathways. And I was just trying to sort of not make them too model like of any one particular thing. But they were really and they were called the dapple light of the sun, just that philosophical idea or that Newtonian sort of idea of just sitting under a tree and experiencing nature, and that's when the best ideas come. So that's sort of that's the title comes from that. That, that sort of experience, that beautiful, serene experience of sitting under a, uh, under a tree. Um, but it's, and also the idea of a shadow and trying to deduce um, something from its shadow. It's a sort of Hodgkin idea or a Plato's cave idea. <laughs> the, um, the one thing that when I built this thing in the countryside, I, putting this thing together, it formed this sort of chaotic sort of thing, was that it, there was this one thing, if you put them together in one order, it formed this triple, triple helix, this, this, um, this spiral, which was something that I sort of felt like, again, I'd, I'd sort of I'd, I'd discovered or invented. But so there was, was a real sense of that discovery, which I think I share with scientists, in that I knew that it wasn't an invention, but it was, was unearthing something that was, that was sort of like, a, like an archaeologist, sort of digging in the earth. It was, it was not necessarily, own, there wasn't ownership of it, but it was a discovery. And this is a big, this is my first public commission of building this Axiom Tower that's in the Ministry of Justice uh, in, um, in Petit France. 
And again, this, was, this is when I sort of felt a bit that the pieces, where the artistry comes in, that it was sort of, even though it's the same size way up, it, it felt like it was diminishing. So I needed to fake the, the geometry in order to make it look right. So to make, because it looked, for me, this was, per, it's perfect geometrically, but it felt like it was getting smaller because of, for shortening. So the later works exaggerate the form as they go up. So you sort of make something wrong to make it look right, like an Albertian facade or, so it's sort of tweaking. Uh, and then this is the culmination of that, which is outside the Francis Crick, again, fitting very much in this art and science um, idea of, um, the Francis Crick Institute is a, is a biomedical lab trying to sort of find inventive, pioneering new ways of, of approaching problems. Um, well, with, with this one, just tell us a little bit more about that, because you know, the idea of the paradigm shift is the idea behind it, isn't it? Tell us about that. Yeah, so it's called paradigm, so it's the paradigm shift is a Thomas Kuhn idea within the philosophy of science that that's uh, scientific ideas, and I suppose it's interesting in terms of mathematics that we were talking about this in the studio, that within science there is this idea that we have, that things that are, notions of what is real or what is proven are, has to be kind of tackled or, or undermined in order for new theories to sort of thrive and to, and healthy science has to chisel away at pre-existing ideas of what's real. Yeah, in mathematics you don't get that, you see. I mean, there's a real difference. Um, I just wrote an introduction to the latest edition of Kuhn's um, Re Scientific Revolutions, and, um, and it kind of made me realise that this is one of the other big differences between mathematics and science, because science is, as you say, we thought there were atoms, and then that got overturned, and we had to rewrite the paradigm. It, no, there are uh, electrons and protons, and then the protons came apart, and there are quarks. We think those are indivisible, but... Probably not. You know, how many is tortoises all the way down? Probably. So, but mathematics actually, what the ancient Greeks discovered, those proof of the fly platonic solids, um, is as true today as it was 5,000 years, 2,000 years ago. Um, and the power of proof to uh, to actually establish that kind of certainty. Certainly something I, I was drawn to, I think, um, as a kind of insecure teenager is kind of one of the reasons I loved maths is knowing that I, I, I could prove something with that kind of certainty. So we have revolutions, but they generally add to what the knowledge that we have. They don't destroy the knowledge that's there and replace it, as happens very often with scientific revolutions. Because with this sculpture, this sort of idea, it's a sort of very quite childlike conceit. It's a, it's a stack of tetroids, which are getting bigger each time. So the form, while it's getting more mighty and more kind of uh, more omnipresent, it also is becoming its own demise. And if you added if you added another one to this, my, as my structural engineer will tell you, the whole thing would definitely collapse. Uh, so it's, um, it, there is this idea of of um, progress can only happen through the collapse. But it's interesting because I see this as a symbol of a sort of of scientific endeavour. But it would be interesting to know what you think is a good symbol for mathematical progress. In terms of a sort of, it doesn't. Does it? It does not involve collapse of any sort. No, I, I would say that it's um, a structure where you know that you will be able to carry on building for forever in a way, and and that's what's interesting because very often the the mathematical uh, models that we make in the mind uh, tend to be things that we perhaps cannot ever physically realise. So again, this kind of tension between the physical universe and and the mathematical universe. I mean, the 
um, we now believe the physical universe is quantized both in space and maybe even in time, which means everything is just basically like bits in a computer. But for a mathematician, I can infinitely divide an object in my mind, just halving it, halving it, and that's absolutely possible. You know, Zeno was doing that, but that may physically be impossible. So that kind of interesting tension between what I'm creating, actually, you know, that that idea, you mentioned Plato and the shadows, um, uh, you know, perhaps what I make can never actually, all you'll ever get is a kind of rather corrupt, bastardized shadow in our physical universe, so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sorry about that. No, not no, at all. No, do, do continue, well, you've got yeah. a couple more to show us, haven't so, you? Sure, so these, these ones have sort of proliferated and I've sort of explored them in different, in different uh, ways. This is the paradigm exploded where it, it's really self-generated this sort of helical stem inside itself, which then you suspend these mirrored uh, panels off. So it, it's just become this very rich vein that keeps on sort of giving, which has been very, really exciting. And it um, and has led to these other ones, these double exploded paradigms, which is, this is now this, and I sort of see these almost like, they're sort of meant to feel like a sort of DNA model or something that has this sort of very rational construction. And I think in some ways the sculptures, it's a bit of a tough word, but they, they're quite disingenuous, my sculptures, in the sense that I want them to have this rational cloak to them. They have this rational sense of design and, and um, kind of a, a, the authority of the machine or, or of the rational, but underneath them there is this more poetic or metaphysical or philosophical problems. I quite like the disguise of that because I think it, it catches people more off guard and people are more... Uh, able or willing to engage on a more kind of profound level. Sometimes when people see an artwork, they can just say, oh, it's just an artwork, I don't need to understand that. Whereas the archaeological, when one puts on one's archaeological hat, it become, and you find something, or you, uh, you come across something. Speaking of finding something, you're going to tell us about the mysterious Oh, last yeah, I one. can. Oh, let me just, um, uh, it's Go the last, I think it's the next, here it is. So this is the, this is the latest... Um, piece that I've been, make, that I've been making with um, the, the tetrahedron. And uh, there's, there's basically, this, is, this is sort of fits in with the first, again, with this platonic solids at the beginning, where this almost is an icosahedron. It's like a sort of failed icosahedron. But How many sides does an icosahedron have? Icosahedron is 20-sided. Okay. Um, it's the com- most complex of the platonic solids. So it's 20, it has um, 20 equilateral triangles on its face. The tetrahedron is made up of four equilateral triangles, but and when you and what, when I first got made those wooden ones, I expected to be able to put them together and it form bigger objects out of the things, or you'd be, and you'd be able to find a bigger tetrahedron out of smaller tetrahedrons, or you'd be able to put them together and form an icosahedron. But there's something very beguiling and something very uh, problematic about the tetrahedron, which I find very exciting, in that it, it sort of for me it throws up lots of possibilities of things that are quite um, disturbing or quite um, certainly undermining of our sense of what is real or what we, or what we assume to be um, uh, reality or, or, or to be true. So it forms, when you put them together, it forms, and you can do this in many different arrangements, it forms this kind of rupture or this, this crack. Um, so this is it turning, this is this one with a mirrored interior, so you sort of, it, it, it um, kind of expresses it more. But I, I kind of, from a, from a sort of philosophical point of view, I think it sort of e- either proves a sort of godless universe or a potentially a, a, a universe with a, a very mischievous god. Or I think in, in a way it's a very timely piece. I quite, we're showing, 
one of these at Freeze next week. But for me, it, it's, it's, and I call the piece Schism, and it's very, it feels very much like a sort of idea of something that is united and a union, or so it's got, it's got a very political feel to it, that this, there is an irreconcilable rupture that is basically getting worse. Uh, and so, so it feels... Uh, it feels and it's like made out of 20 equilateral tetrahedrons, uh, and it, they won't conform. If someone doesn't write a great Doctor Who episode based on this object, I don't know why. <laughs> one, of, one of the things I was going to ask you, which I, I, it may be complete um, poppycock, but I had this sort of idea, and I'm not a mathematician, but that in some, in some, in some form of some space-time continuum, would these things line up? <laughs> in some Great question. Well, it, it, no, it's, it's a good question because, um, you, you know, you're trying to do something in, uh, you know, classical Euclidean mm. uh, geometry and um, actually if you move into a different sort of geometry, a, a hyperbolic geometry where you've got curved space, mm. um, the, it allows possibilities for things which just won't work in uh, Euclidean space. So um, you get, for example, um, a, a way of tiling the walls, you know, mm. those 17 uh, um, ways of tiling the walls just with triangles. I mean, that's a kind of two-dimensional version of what you're trying to do. You know, you can do triangles, squares, they mm. tessellate um, uh, hexagons as well, but pentagons don't. They kind of are, have holes in them. Um, uh, but when you then put it in a different geometry, you find new possibilities. So, so it's absolutely possible that you'll find that if you um, put this in a, a curved geometric space, you'd have things that were possible there that are impossible in Euclidean, Euclidean space. But it's interesting, because uh, um, Conrad showed me this, and, and it was a surprise to me, actually. I mean, I, I know, I, I remember being shocked myself when I took those five platonic solids and realized that only the cube is the one that uh, will actually fill space with no gaps. Um, all the other shapes um, leave uh, holes uh, that you, you can't use them. All other 3D shapes. All of the other, yeah, those yeah. five platonic solids. Yeah. Only the cube is the one that will, will, will fill space. And it's interesting, but you can put together different um, shapes and they, they make extraordinary structures. So, um, and you find this in foam, actually. You know, when you go and have a beer later on, just um, put, look at the actual shapes that are forming, because they have to tessellate. Um, so, for example, the uh, swimming pool that was built in Beijing for the Olympics um, was actually the design there. Do you remember? It was this beautiful blue cube with uh, an amazing kind of uh, tessellated shapes on it. But what they did was to take um, what they believe is a minimal foam structure, uh, took a cut through it, and that became the design for that particular space. So, so often these, you know, there's this kind of wonderful dialogue between what's mathematically and physically possible and what then people love uh, sort of artistically. And I think you mentioned actually, I think your description of sitting under the, the dappled um, cloud, dappled, or light, of sun, dappled yeah. light of the sun, I mean, it's that connection to nature. I think that's what underpins all of this, because mathematics was created um, as a language to try and navigate the natural world, and we've developed a particular language to do that. And I think uh, many artists are responding with their particular language. So, so I don't think it's unusual that time and again, whether it's a sculptor or a, a, a composer, um, that I'm finding myself interested in exactly the same structures that they are, because it's, they all have their first inklings in the natural world. Can I bring up the issue of structure? Um, in your book, Marcus, you look at 
the idea of music and maths in particular, but even more broadly, so many great art forms, whether it's the sonnet or you know the fugue, they have rules, and the artistic delight seems to be in playing within the rules, and if you decide to go outside them, um, it happens for a very specific reason. I wonder what your, both your thoughts are on the importance of rules and structures to both math, science, and, and art. Um, well, I, I mean, I've always been really attra attracted to sort of the rule-based artists. I mean, I, and we were talking earlier about uh, sort of Monet and Carl Andre, who would, you'd see as completely sort of diverse, sort of op almost opposing artists with probably very different fan bases and things. But they, they, uh, they, for me, they're kind of they, they, their their um, their kind of technique and their sort of rule-based obsession with repeating the same task and just changing one parameter each time to get beyond the real and to sort of exhaust every permutation of something is sort of a precursor to sort of parametric kind of work. It's sort of really, and I think that they, it's that, that kind of, um, that taking of that sort of scientific mythology, mythology of, of methodology of um, repeating the experiment, but endlessly and sort of with just one- Endless variation. Taking one control and changing it each time. Is sort of very. I'm very. I really love that sort of work and the sequ um, creating sequences where you just change one thing within the object. So we have a sequence of these where you tr we're trying to exhaust every every possible scenario for the for the crack. Um, but it's, so it's um, so, and I, I I get a lot of lot of pleasure out of out of that sort of that sort of. Um, Exhaustive work. Yeah, and that's exactly the same pleasure of the mathematician, you see. I, I, what I will want to know, and I will use my language, and that's why I often have really wonderful conversations with artists, because they will want to answer that particular problem, but may not have the particular tools that I have to be able to, to show what, what they might have missed. And, and that's the power of mathematics time and again in this story of symmetry, is that very often the artist is the first to kind of explore what's possible, and then our language can come and say, well, actually there are only 17 different designs that you could have ever have done in the Alhambra. So there's no point looking, you know, Escher would not be able to come up with an 18th one. They would all just be um, kind of different versions of the 17 that are already there. But I think that was actually one of the messages in my book. I took a lot of different artistic practices uh, and I think from the outside people tend to think it's very mystical, the artistic creative act. It's um, uh, highly emotional. Um, it's somehow, uh, and that's why I think there's, well that you can't replicate in a machine, for example. But uh, I think when you talk to practicing artists, and certainly I've spent a lot of time talking to composers. I've just started this center at the Royal Northern College of Music with a composer, Emily Howard, uh, called PRISM, which is practice and research in science and music. And, and we want to show that uh, very often a composer will start with structure and then explore what's possible in there. And, and the emotional will often come out secondary to that, it's, but it's an emotional response to structure. But if that's true, then what, you know, that surely is perfect for, for a machine. Machines love well, constraints and structures and exploring absolutely the different possibilities can, within Can that. we talk about, oh sorry, did you want to add no, something? No. Well, the, it's really interesting, because in your book you do look at experiments where people input, say, all of Bach into a computer, and then it generates its own version, and how often, I don't know if it was specifically with Bach, but certainly with at least one composer, you had quite serious musical experts not being able to tell the difference. Um, I'm interested in whether it matters, um, and... Yeah. Because you do believe that emotion matters in art, don't you? Even while having just said that 
a computer yes, might I... be able to create something quite listenable. Yeah, well, uh, we actually did an exercise at the Barbican as part of their um, uh, year looking at AI and its impact on art. And I have a, a PhD student now who's a composer, and we took uh, um, uh, an AI machine learning model and gave it all of Bach, and then we pre created this piece. Usually you get a dichotomy. Is this human or is this AI? But we did something a little bit more subtle, which was to create a piece that went um, between... AI and human, and then ask the audience of the Barbican to um, vote on, on what moment they think it went from maybe human to AI. Um, and it, it just, uh, it was impossible for them to tell. The person who could tell was Mahanes Fahani, who was actually playing the thing. And he says, I know exactly the moment, not just because I know the Bach, but because suddenly it's difficult to play the AI bits, because the AI isn't embodied. It doesn't care about playing it. And Bach wrote it to be beautifully under the fingers. So that's an interesting sort of um, uh, thing which is happening in AI art, is that it's starting to push beyond what is, can be embodied, beyond what actually our own human sensory perception um, is happy with, but actually the AI seems to love that complexity. So sorry, yes, of course, so obvious when you say it, the idea of a piece that could only be played on a keyboard by a computer because a human couldn't have the reach. Band -band. Yeah, and so yeah. suddenly you've got... Yeah, yeah beyond, I, mean, uh, uh, I mean, there's a composer uh, uh, and somebody may be able... It's not like Nancro, Nancro um, who, who does these mechanical pieces and they are impossible to play physically. Um, but I think you, you, you mentioned, you know, what's the point of this? I think there is a... Um, of course, all artists start by studying the artists of the past and then they want to break things. So, you know, it's important for AI, I think, to spend time uh, learning art the music, the art of the past before it, it then makes perhaps a, a new move into the unknown. Um, but also those can, this, these new tools can give you insights into uh, old art that, that we hadn't realised. So I think that's also Can you have exciting. got an example? Well, for example, uh, Jackson Pollock's work, um, we only understood really that it has a very unique quality. You know, people think, well, surely anyone can make a Jackson Pollock. You just flick paint around. But a mathematical algorithmic analysis has revealed that he had a very special geometry that he was making on the canvas, and it's an example of a fractal. And he had a, his style of painting was a chaotic pendulum because he would move around a lot whilst flicking. So he would create this um, this very special shape. And again, here's the connection to nature because I went to his studio. His studio is in a forest, surrounded by trees. It's in Long Island, went, isn't it? In Long Island. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And we were there in winter, and you know all these fractal trees. He was creating an abstract version of what he was seeing around him. Um, and I, so I think you know there's an insight where we now use that to actually identify um, fake pollocks because they don't have this quality. So. Mm. But for me, the exciting thing in this new era is, can these tools take us into new realms? And that's what I'm seeing, is, ex is it's not just pastiche that we're seeing. Because, you know, the bark is, you know, why do we need more bark? We've got wonderful bark. We don't need a computer to create more bark. What I'm excited about is, can these be tools to push us as humans into new realms that we hadn't even considered? What do you think, Conrad? I, I agree within, a, a, I think within a certain... Um, slice of art. I mean, it's such a broad, broad um, practice to be an artist. So I think there is there's huge scope for like for this for this interplay or this partnership or even for there to be superior 
um, or more interesting or different. Like when you were talking about Go, there's just it's taking it to another level in terms of what people, the humans have learned from this. I should say connection. you're talking about AlphaGo, which yeah, is. Yeah, so I start the book with a story of Go, because yeah. I believe this is a moment when we see algorithms being creative because it started doing moves that we've mm. never even considered as. As good moves. So this was being able to beat the best human player so, of the yeah. game. Yeah, go. but not only that, because we know computers can do things much better than humans. Yeah. The, the point was that this computers actually made moves that were, I believe, we should call creative because you know, everyone was completely shocked by them, thought they were bad moves, and they turned out to be moves with huge value, which have taught us to play the name game in a new way. Yeah. Thank you. So, Sorry. but I think that within these 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 sorts of art, where there is there are very strict constraints and parameters and, and rules with a Pollock or a Solar Wit or a Carl Andre, which have these, these innate mathematical properties of repetition and, and constraint, and uh, there is there is real validity. But I think that some of the motivations that the reasons why humans create art will never be replicated just to, to, to convey loneliness or just because you want to get laid or I don't know, whatever, like just stuff that computers won't I'm know. glad you admitted that's why artists make but work. But it's just the basic reasons why I, I made art when I was a teenager and when I was a young man was because I wanted to be loved. I wanted to be, I wanted people to see that I was brilliant or, I mean, these, I wanted my mother to be proud of me. I wanted, but I, well, I wanted to get laid. I mean, I just, but I didn't, these things, I mean, it's just very, these things are innate things, but they, to convey loneliness or the fact that you're starving or the fact that you are, suicidal or that you are abjectly I mean depressed is never going to come across in a machine and so if you like sort of Tracy Emmett or Klimt or or the, the sort of the sort of those human emotions will never I don't see how those things will ever be rep replaced or, or bettered. Uh, but I think that I, I agree I don't think it'll be better but I think you know we are moving towards a, uh, um, an age where uh, algorithm, uh, AI could become, have a consciousness. There's absolutely no reason, I think, why, um, you know, this, this thing in my pocket may not suddenly, you know, say iPhone think, therefore iPhone am, and I've got to consider there might be a consciousness inside it. And, that, and, 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 and then yeah. I think it, the things that it will produce art-wise will be our best indicator of what it might be like mm. to be one of these things. It, yeah, it would, it would give us... But that's a, a long way, time I don't away, think but. it would ever... It would just because the needs and the necessities and the raison d'etre of of an AI system would never be about being hungry or getting laid. No, I think it'd be about different things. It would be, it would be about different, becoming obsolete. Completely different. Well, hopefully. You know, well, I'm an iPhone 10 and there's an 11 now. And uh, well, yeah. no, but it just it just will be. I mean, we can't even begin to imagine that. Imagine. I, 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 I think that's the point. I mean, and the, but it, it, it and it would create the most extraordinary um, sort of sort of eye-opening experiences, probably, or visual experiences, but they may not even be visual. I mean, that's the other thing. That's the other thing. Before we get on to things which are not even visual, can I ask about beauty? And you quote, um, you know, the great mathematician, what's his initials, Hardy? G.H. G.H. Hardy, as played by Jeremy Irons. I think he was, Jeremy Irons is a slightly sexier version of Hardy in that film about Ramanujan. Um, but the quote was, no, there's no place in the world for ugly mathematics. So... Beauty isn't, isn't necessary for art in a literal sense. Uh, when you think of being aesthetically pleasing, it can be disturbing. Um, uh, can maths be disturbing and ugly? Yes, it can. And I think uh, um, probably people laughing at most of maths probably is disturbing and ugly for uh, people. But, uh, but no, I think that's the point. It, it isn't just about 
beauty. I think he was rather narrow-minded in, uh, I mean, it's a beautiful book, this Mathematician's Apology. It's what I read at, when I was at school, my maths teacher gave it to me. It's about what it means to be a mathematician, and, and in, in there you realize it's about being a creative artist, not a useful scientist. And he talks a lot about beauty and this being a quality, but I think, um, for me, Beauty isn't the right word. It's about having an emotional response to it. So um, I think very often uh, something you think might be beautiful because it's quite simple actually becomes much more interesting when it becomes there's a complexity that suddenly arises. I remember I, was, I had this conjecture about beautiful symmetry and some equations that I was working with. And my student came with an example where this symmetry broke down. And he was frightened I would be upset that I'd, he'd proved this thing was wrong. But for me, this added a, another layer of fascinating complexity because it meant that some of these things would be symmetrical I wanted to know why they were and why were the ones that weren't um, like that so it became uh, actually much more interesting because of that kind of uh, glitch that, that he'd revealed you talked about the idea of computers ultimately being able to produce art that might not even be visible, which is really interesting. Tell us a bit more about your thinking well, and then was, Marcus. I mean, it was really just from sort of trying to imagine what that would be, but it's just that the necessities of, of, uh, of an AI system which is connected through the internet doesn't really need eyes. I mean, it doesn't seem to, it does not, there's no predatorial element to it or need to replicate or anything like that. It would just exist on a... It, the need for visual visualization of data is not necessarily important. It's just um, so I, I'm. I don't know whether you you may be able to encourage it or um, still program it to make extraordinary uh, visualizations. Of, and I think mathematical visualizations of even screensavers on iTunes are extraordinary sort of manifestations of synesthesia and, and things which are uh, extraordinary. There's things that only exist because of... Um, and just remember, synesthesia is when you um, he, is it hear colours or see sounds? You, it's everything. Every, it's any the, mix of senses. Any mix of senses. Any of the five senses getting kind of um, um, inter-related um, or crossing, crossing over. But the most common is to see sounds. Yes. That's the most common um, uh, one that people experience. Um, you would, but in terms of symmetry, because I think this is something that maybe is worth um, talking about. Because in mathematics, it's, or mathematics have, uh, within scientists and mathematics, have, mathematicians have wonderful ways of coining new phrases for new discoveries, whether that's uh, black holes or quantum tunneling, or I mean, all the wonderful, wonderful phrases come out. Uh, and symmetry, I guess, I think, it feels a little bit like that to me, because it, we. As, as layman's or as, as a non-mathematician, certainly not an expert in any way, the symmetry to me is a very visual yeah. thing to do with seeing two sides of something which are the same and folding a piece of paper. But could you explain I know, uh, what symmetry means to a mathematician? Yeah, I think this was... Uh, actually, it was the subject of my second book was the, this kind of journey we went on, which started with the visual about, you know, we think of reflectional symmetry, um, uh, rotational symmetry, the fact that you can take a tetrahedron and sort of move it round and it still looks yeah. like it did. Um, but it was this kind of huge breakthrough that took um, from the visual realm into a kind of linguistic realm that happened um, with this one of our mathematical heroes, Evarys Galois. He should certainly have his movie um, made about him. Uh, uh, this guy 
died in a duel at the age of 20 over love and politics during the French uh, kind of period, revolution period, but he'd already created a, a kind of language that helped to articulate what we mean by symmetry. So um, that the tetrahedron, sometimes I call symmetry the magic trick moves. You know, symmetry for many... Uh, for someone like um, uh, Thomas Mann talks about symmetry in the Magic Mountain and calls it deathly, a very marrow of death, it's sort of because it's something which is still and, and, and perfect. But actually, for a mathematician, symmetry is all about movement and energy. It's about what can I do to this shape, move it in some way such that when I put it back down again, it looks like I did before I moved it. So it's the, it's the movement. And then... Uh, this guy, Everest Galois, realized that, um, well, actually, it doesn't have to be a physical object. It can be anything. I mean, actually, the three of us um, are, could be a symmetrical object um, because uh, uh, we're just going to get up now and we're going to rearrange ourselves. So just, um, you know, choose another seat. Um, uh, okay. Uh, right, okay, well, I got back in the middle. That's fine. Um, but you see, that, that is a move of the three of us. And then mathematicians were like, okay, well, what other moves? Uh, and we could combine those. Why don't we just swap over it like that? Um, so that's another move, but the combination of those two moves have made a third one. So that there's an algebraic relationship between these. And we're like faces of an object just being moved around, like a triangle. Um, that actually reminds me, when you talk of the three of us, if we were tetrahedrons, it would make no difference us moving into any of these positions. Because there's only, you can't put three tetrahedrons together in any different way but one. That, that's really that fascinating. Was, that was a yeah. really key discovery for me, because I was making this sculpture with thousands of tetrahedrons, I just didn't know how to grow it, and uh, work out how to, the rules and the logics and, the, and, the, and, the, and, the, and all the parameters. But I, went, I, had 15, I knew I had about 1,500 tetrahedrons in each sculpture. But I suddenly realized that I could, I had to, if I clustered three together, they, they, would, that would, they wouldn't... There was only one way to put, put three, three together. Although they look, might have looked different. You can't... You can't um, you, each one would be able to be moved. If you number the faces, there would be, but if, because all the faces are the same. Yeah. There's only, so it suddenly, it thirded the task. So if we were to, yeah, anyway, so it just reminded me of the... Well, that's, uh -huh. you see, one of the, the you know, if you've got a, a, a problem in science, uh, symmetry can be a, a really powerful way to, to totally simplify something. You might think, you, oh, I've got 40 different cases here, but then you see, actually, they're all the same. I just can move one around to the other, and once I've solved one, the solution will work, because I just move the shape around, and it solves all the other 39, so... Um, and actually, that's, you know, the reason we've discovered um, the fundamental particles, the quarks that you mentioned, which make up the whole of matter, is that we identified a symmetrical object in uh, basically an eight-dimensional space. And we saw that there were faces missing from this shape corresponding to particles we hadn't discovered yet. And that led us to the prediction, there should be a face there, because this thing is too beautiful to uh, not be the explanation of the way the universe is put together. Um, and sure enough, it led us to the discovery of you know, things ultimately like the Higgs boson. Funnily enough, I was just thinking of the Higgs boson. So there's a very famous painting of Peter Higgs. Um, and I interviewed the artist who made it. And I don't know if you've seen it. It's in the National Portrait Gallery in Scotland. And it's him standing with this kind of light coming from behind his head, like a kind of Eureka moment. And there's a pencil in his pocket. And the artist said, it's because I went to his flat and I expected it to be full of, I don't know, some kind of scientific stuff because he was a physicist. But he said it was just a pencil because it's just the idea. Yeah. And, and he came, it's theoretical physics. And it, it took, was it 50 years for his theory to be proven? And he was basically waiting for the science to catch up with what his 
brain had creatively come up with. Yeah, I mean, I think that, for me, that's one of the exciting things about being a mathematician, that is, I'm, I'm not um, limited to our kind of three-dimensional universe to create things. So I can actually, you know, use this language to explore uh, things which will never be physically uh, realized. But in some ways, this language has given me, within my own mind, a feeling of physicality. So do you use? Do I say? Do you use a pencil and paper anymore? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I'm, I'm, so my uh, canvas of choice is a yellow legal notepads, and I just use um, a pencil with that. Actually, they always have to have the margins on the uh, on the uh, right because okay. um, I, I did. I got obsessed with these in Israel, and in Israel they write the wrong way. So when I was a postdoc <laughs> in Israel, so. But for example, I don't use a computer. Uh, I mean, I sometimes do a few experiments, but the computer at the moment does not have the ability to have those insights that I can on a piece of paper. And on a piece of paper, I can be very non-linear. Um, so I, I'm not bound by it having to follow. Can I, I'm not open up to questions after this. What are your thoughts? I'm fascinated to bring it back to actually, you know, what do you use to work I, on? Well, I, 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 again, my, I sketch a lot. And so I'm, I'm, that's my primary place for ideas is sort of sketching. Uh, so I, I would, it's sim in similar, I, I don't, um, we, we have a lot of computer capability in the studio, but I tend to try and draw things by hand and just, and have it out that way. I mean, that's really my first um, protocol. But folding paper also is, I mean, like the optic cloak you mentioned before, the whole geometry of the outside was trying to come up with a tile that would sort of be repetitive. So there was some sort of, kind of, um, sort of uh, value economics to say with some repetition to it, but then create a one, it was just folding a square piece of paper and, and coming up with a, a sort of system that mirrored and, and sort of would mirror each other to the sides, like a tiling system. It sort, of, it sort of shimmers, doesn't it? Um, yeah, yeah. With the, that, so that's through with all the perforations to it, but the actual yeah. the envelope, the, the actual um, sculptural envelope was sort of done through just pleating and folding paper. So that was just really basic, really non, really totally uh, sort of analog kind of uh, experimentation. Um, Marcus and Conrad, thank you so much for a fascinating conversation. Thank you for your questions, and thank you again for coming. Thank you, Samira. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this recording, feel free to leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts.